The following episode contains discussions of murder, violence, and sexual assault that some listeners might find offensive. Please exercise caution for children under 13. The sun dips low on the horizon on October 31st. A yearly tradition is about to commence. As darkness creeps over the edges of the sky, children in colorful costumes flood the streets. In their hands are buckets, lunchboxes, pillowcases, and grocery bags. Many are accompanied by adults or older siblings. They will not return home until their sacks are filled with sweets. They knock on their neighbors' doors, always uttering the same phrase. Trick or treat! The practice of trick-or-treating is supposed to represent a night of impish but relatively wholesome fun, a chance for children to disguise themselves and indulge their sweet tooth. Its very existence is a strange paradox. On the night we celebrate fear, we also participate in a ritual that puts our children at risk. What happens when a child approaches a neighbor's house and knocks, expecting a treat only to find a deadly trick on the other side of the door. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind the cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our fourth episode on the dark side of holidays. The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're discussing trick-or-treating, the annual tradition that sends scores of children walking up and down their neighborhood streets, knocking on unfamiliar doors and requesting candy. Every other day of the year, we explicitly tell our children not to take things from strangers. But on Halloween, it's encouraged. However, even though Halloween is accepted practice nationwide, stories about the dangers of trick-or-treating are incredibly prevalent. Rumors of Halloween sadists who poison children just because they can have spread since the 1950s. These stories contribute to a broader fear that Halloween, the very night when we celebrate the things that scare us, is in fact the most dangerous celebration on the calendar. This week on The Dark Side Of, we'll determine whether there really is anything to fear on this horrifying holiday. As we discussed in our last episode, the origins of Halloween can be traced back to the pagan festival of Samhain. 
This druid celebration was rumored to involve human sacrifice. However, these bloody practices may have been exaggerated. It's an appealing connection for those who revel in the more grisly trappings of All Hallows' Eve. Despite its pagan origins, the modern iteration of Halloween has evolved into something a lot less spiritual and much more carefree. It is a time for dressing up in ghoulish costumes, going to haunted houses, and jumping out at your friends from darkened corners. Even if modern society doesn't ascribe their spooky celebrations to ancient religions, the sinister aura we associate with Halloween has endured. Some claim that alongside Independence Day and New Year's Eve, crime rates in the United States spike on Halloween. This varies from city to city, but in certain locations, such as Boston, Massachusetts, the crime rate climbs almost 50% on the night of October 31st. Aware of these statistics, many police departments across the country have regulations in place specifically for Halloween night. In Orange County, California, for instance, registered sex offenders were once required to post a sign on the door reading, no candy or treats at this residence. Individuals who failed to comply risked a $1,000 fine or a year of jail time. But all the preparations in the world won't stop a playful Halloween prank from getting out of hand. October 31st, 1998. 21-year-old Carl Jackson and his girlfriend were driving to pick up her son from a Halloween party in the Bronx. Jackson, a clerk at Morgan Stanley, tended to avoid Halloween. He perceived the holiday as too dangerous. Suddenly, a series of projectiles struck their car, eggs thrown by a group of nearby teenagers. Jackson pulled to the side of the road and leaped out of the car, shouting at the teenagers. After a brief argument, Jackson returned to the car and got back behind the wheel. But before he could drive away, one of the teenagers pulled out a gun and fired a single shot into the car window. Carl Jackson was killed instantly. 17-year-old Curtis Sterling was charged with his murder and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Every year, he received a Halloween card in the mail from Carl Jackson's mother. The card read, I'm glad you're still there. Egg-throwing pranks are fairly commonplace in New York City, especially in the days surrounding Halloween. These practical jokes often take a dark turn, similar to the case of Carl Jackson. Between 1984 and 2010, 24 people were critically injured or killed in incidents that began with egg-throwing. Many of these confrontations were similar to Jackson's. Eggs struck a vehicle, residence, or individual, and the victim of the attack attempted to confront the pranksters, leading to irreversible violence. Oftentimes, it is the pranksters themselves that suffer these dire consequences. The story of youths who pick the wrong individual to prank are depressingly common. Stabbings and shootings in these instances have been reported throughout Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. Knowing this, the police in New York City frequently warn corner stores not to sell eggs to minors on Halloween night. But they cannot make it an official law because the eggings themselves are supposedly harmless. 
Egg throwing and other acts of petty vandalism on Halloween are holdovers from a more chaotic tradition, Mischief Night. Traditionally celebrated on the night before Halloween, Mischief Night is a tradition of vandalism and pranking in a number of cities. Like rampant graffiti and defacing billboards, other times, the pranks of Mischief Night cause citywide destruction. In Detroit, Michigan, Mischief Night goes by another name. They call it Devil's Night. And one of the most notorious staples of Devil's Night is arson. Starting fires on October 30th was practically a Detroit tradition for a significant part of its history. At its height in 1984, Devil's Night produced 297 fires, destroying over 800 buildings. While this very particular Halloween celebration is believed to have started in the 1980s, some evidence suggests it was prompted by the 1967 Detroit riots. The practice even received its own silver screen representation in the 1994 comic book film The Crow. The lead character, portrayed by Brandon Lee, is killed by a gang of thugs on Devil's Night. The municipal government of Detroit realized they had to address the arson tradition directly. They enacted a curfew for minors, organized neighborhood patrols, and rebranded October 30th as Angel's Night. While the number of fires have gone down significantly since the 1980s, the infernal history of this celebration keeps the entire city on edge as Halloween rolls closer. As recently as 2017, there were 21 reported Devil's Night fires. Detroit isn't the only city whose Halloween traditions expose it to danger. And unlike Devil's Night, not every Halloween horror can be addressed by a wary fire brigade. In 1978, Pasadena, California became an iconic horror movie location when John Carpenter's film Halloween premiered. It depicted a masked psychopath coldly stalking through the suburban streets, killing off a number of teenagers and adults, unaware that such an evil person walks among them. The movie effectively portrayed just how fragile the comfort and security of peaceful suburbia was. Despite being a stand-in for Haddonfield, Illinois, the streets of Pasadena were associated with the brutal, if fictitious, Halloween murders. But in the film, the victims were all babysitters looking after children too young to be trick-or-treating. None of them were trick-or-treaters themselves. Fifteen years after the iconic film, real-life horror struck Pasadena, and it didn't show the same restraint as Michael Myers. In 1993, a group of eight teenage boys laden with candy were walking home from a Halloween party. It had been a good night, and though they were in costume, none of the teens expected to be mistaken for gang members. Three older boys were walking from the other direction. As they drew nearer, their gazes landed on the trick-or-treaters. Before the teens could react, the older boys drew handguns and opened fire on the group. Three of the eight trick-or-treaters were killed in the shooting. The perpetrators, members of the Pasadena Bloods, had mistaken the boys for members of their rival gang, the Crips, due to a blue bandana one of the boys had tucked into his pocket. 
The murder scandalized the suburban community of Pasadena and carried with it an implicit warning. Wearing a costume out at night was an inherent danger when real killers were roaming the streets. And this is far from the most senseless crime to occur on October 31st. In 2011, a Chicago woman named Maria Adams was found beaten and stabbed immediately after Halloween. Her acquaintance, Liddell Peoples, was arrested and charged with her murder. Apparently, Adams and Peoples had gotten into a heated argument that night, which resulted in violence and eventually Adams' death. The cause of this murder? A missing bag of Halloween candy that Peoples accused Adams of taking. Random violent crimes occur every day of the year. But there's something about Halloween that seems to bring out monsters in us all. From the senseless murders to arson and egg throwing, the desire to cut loose and behave like a devil for a night is a strong urge in all of us. In a sense, these random crimes are inevitable on a night when everyone is wearing masks and prowling the streets after dark. But since the 1950s, a very specific kind of Halloween danger inspires far more fear in suburban families than vandals or muggers. As parents send their children out onto the streets at night, they wonder, what if someone slips poison or sharp objects into my child's candy? We'll discuss the history of Halloween candy tampering after this. Now, back to the story. Since the earliest versions of Halloween, danger has stalked the streets, particularly in the country that celebrates Halloween the most passionately, America. According to some experts, crime rates spike sharply in many American cities during Halloween. Pranks gone wrong, quarrels over stolen candy, and gangland hits missing their intended targets have all contributed to death on this most morbid of holidays. And sometimes, telling the difference between a Halloween costume and a criminal disguise is completely impossible. In one instance, the prototypical Halloween crime happened a day early, on October 30th, 1982, in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Trick-or-treaters wandered the streets a day early, likely because it was a Saturday. 69-year-old Marvin Brandlin and his wife Ethel had spent the evening handing out candy to kids. Their granddaughter, Teresa Trueblood, left to join in on the fun of trick-or-treating. Minutes later, a heavy knocking came from their door. Ethel opened it to find a full-grown man wearing a pillowcase on his head with two eye holes in it. The costume was similar to Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th Part 2, a film that was released just over a year earlier. The man said, Trick or treat. Give me the money or I'll shoot. Thinking this man was one of their relatives or friends, Ethel took the mask in her hands and attempted to remove it. As she lifted the pillowcase, the man pulled away. Thinking this was all part of the practical joke, Ethel went inside to get candy for him, but the masked man followed her. When he stepped through the door, the man drew a pistol and pointed it at both Ethel and Marvin, who sat just inside. He demanded that they take him to their safe in the basement, 
Marvin stood and led the man further into the house toward where they held their meager savings. As they passed into the kitchen, Marvin stopped and refused to go any further. This joke had gone too far. He made a grab for the masked man's gun. The intruder shot Marvin through the throat. As Ethel screamed, the intruder ripped off his mask and fled. Marvin was rushed to the emergency room, but in the early hours of Halloween morning, he passed away. The man who committed this bungled burglary was never caught, though it is widely suspected that this was a relative who knew the location of their safe. In a sea of people going house to house in masks, a man intending to do actual harm blended right in. His targets even opened the door for him. The very holiday provided all the burglar needed to approach the house unquestioned. And when it comes to trick-or-treating, harm can come from either side of an inviting doorway. It's a cautionary tale we've all heard, either as morbid jokes exchanged by children or stern warnings from parents. Always check your candy for booby traps before you eat it. The examples are always the same. A razor blade in an apple. Arsenic sprinkled over sour candy instead of sugar. Rat poison coating gummy worms. Starting as early as the 1980s, local hospitals have even offered to x-ray Halloween candy for free, all to protect the children. Where did these stories start? And are they still an ever-present danger on the night of the 31st? The history of Halloween candy tampering is a long and convoluted tale where documented fact and urban legend become almost indistinguishable. And it starts at the end of the 1950s. Dr. William Shine was a Fremont, California dentist in 1959. Like everyone else in his California neighborhood, he opened his door to children in costume on the night of Halloween and handed out candy. But that night, about 30 children in Dr. Shine's neighborhood became violently sick. It turned out that Shine had distributed 450 laxative pills coated in sugar to children that night. Once the police traced the prank back to Shine, he was charged with outrage of public decency and unlawful dispensing of drugs. The reason Shine pulled this tasteless prank has been lost to time. Though no children were permanently harmed that night, the perceived security of trick-or-treating was shattered. Parents could no longer entirely trust that the treats being handed out were candy and not dangerous drugs. For the first time, the trick part of trick-or-treat actually seemed to mean something. And not even five years later, another unscrupulous individual would use Halloween as a chance to target trick-or-treating youths. Long Island, 1964. A housewife named Helen File was irritated at how frequently she saw preteens and teenagers showing up at her door on Halloween. They were far too old to be trick-or-treating. So instead of handing out candy to these older children, she gave them dog biscuits and steel wool. She also handed out ant buttons, small poison traps intended to kill household insects. Even though the ant traps were clearly marked poison, File was still taken to court for endangering children. 
She pleaded guilty, saying that it was a joke. Her husband, who had gone out earlier that night to trick-or-treat with her own teenage children, spoke in her defense. He stated that her actions were thoughtless, but not malicious. She was given a suspended sentence. By the dawn of the 1970s, the idea of Halloween candy tampering had taken root. Outlets such as Newsweek ran stories about the dangers of trick-or-treating, stoking a growing public panic. This led to the creation of a modern urban legend known in some circles as the Halloween sadist. The sadist is an individual or series of individuals who seeks to cause chaos in suburban America by randomly poisoning trick-or-treaters. But do real-world examples of the Halloween sadist even exist? Or are they simply a boogeyman conjured up by overly protective parents on the night their children are supposed to let their guard down? At the time, the press was running wild with rumors. The only recorded instances of candy tampering they had were Dr. Shine and Mrs. File, neither of whom had any intent to kill. Naturally, this caveat went unmentioned in the press. Without citing any specific historical cases, these publications ran shamelessly alarmist columns, writing things like, If this year's Halloween follows form, a few children will return home with something more than an upset tummy. In recent years, several children have died, and hundreds have narrowly escaped serious injury from razor blades, sewing needles, and shards of glass purposefully put into their goodies by adults. The New York Times got in on the action on October 28, 1970, running a piece entitled, These Treats May Be Tricks, describing many of the same kinds of tampering. Three days later, what seemed to be another instance of candy tampering shocked the residents of Detroit, Michigan. Five-year-old Kevin Tostin fell ill on Halloween night and subsequently slipped into a coma. Four days later, he died in the hospital. The doctors found a large amount of heroin in the child's digestive system. People across Detroit began to speculate. Who in their neighborhood had been infusing Halloween candy with heroin? And would their own children be next? But an investigation revealed the timing of Tostin's illness to be a coincidence. Tostin had been staying with his uncle on Halloween night, where he discovered the older man's heroin stash. Not knowing better, the child ate the drugs. Tragic though it may be, the death of Kevin Tostin was not the doing of a Halloween sadist, though it was initially reported that way. The true Halloween sadist struck in 1974, on a rainy Halloween night in Pasadena, Texas. Eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien and his five-year-old sister Elizabeth were out trick-or-treating with their friends, chaperoned by their father, Ronald. Timothy was dressed in a Planet of the Apes costume. The children returned home that night with plenty of Halloween candy in their bags. Mr. O'Brien told his children that they could each have one piece of candy before going to sleep. After a brief period of indecision, Timothy selected a pixie sticks from among his collection of candy. He popped open the staple holding it together and dumped the sugar into his mouth. 
but he didn't like the taste, and his father fetched him some Kool-Aid to wash it down. Moments later, Timothy started vomiting violently. Timothy was rushed to the hospital, but died before they could help him. The Pasadena police were called in and found the dead boy lying on his hospital bed with foam around his lips. The doctors identified this as poisoning by potassium cyanide. In a way, potassium cyanide is the perfect drug to use in Halloween candy. The white powder is indistinguishable from the sugar already in the pixie sticks. Timothy had no way of knowing the candy was fatal until the bitter powder touched his tongue, and by then, it was too late. The O'Briens were utterly distraught. The next day, members of their church gathered to mourn the boy. Ronald O'Brien took to the podium to give a brief eulogy for his son. He concluded his tearful speech with the words, I have my peace in knowing Tim is in heaven now. He told reporters that his wife was too distressed to even talk to anyone. Ronald O'Brien was quoted in local papers saying, It's so disheartening to think there wasn't more we could do. We thought we were being so careful. We had even wondered if we should go out this year. Narrowing down the suspect list was an easy task for investigators. They simply had to follow the O'Brien trick-or-treating route. They took Mr. O'Brien through the neighborhood, asking if he could remember which house he had gotten the pixie sticks from. He could not. He claimed that due to the rain, he had only taken the children to two houses before they went back home. Neither of these homes gave out pixie sticks that night. After reflecting on the fateful night, O'Brien remembered that he had taken the kids to a third house whose owner did not answer their doorbell. However, after the group started to move on, O'Brien had doubled back. The door to the third house had cracked open as if finally reacting to the trick-or-treaters. The occupant of this mysterious house had reached out and handed him five pixie sticks. O'Brien had then gone to catch up with the rest of the party and distributed the candy to the children. All he had seen of the man inside was a hairy arm that reached out of the house. The mysterious house belonged to a neighbor named Courtney Melvin. Investigators spoke to Melvin, but he had an airtight alibi. He worked as an air dispatcher, so wasn't at home until 11 that night. Over 200 witnesses confirmed that Melvin was indeed at work when Timothy was poisoned. The fatal candy seemed to have appeared out of thin air. In the days following the murder of Timothy O'Brien, it seemed to be the perfect crime. Anonymous, random, and without any possible link to the victim. And then the police received a phone call that led them directly to the killer. Coming up... The identity of the original Halloween sadist is revealed. Now, back to the story. While instances of Halloween candy tampering have been sporadically recorded since 1959, the hysteria surrounding the potential dangers of trick-or-treating were largely exaggerated over the intervening decades. Many newspapers and tabloids ran stories insinuating that deaths had occurred due to Halloween sadists who gave out fatal candy. 
However, the first recorded instance of death directly caused by Halloween did not occur until October 31, 1974. Eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien of Pasadena, Texas, came back from trick-or-treating with a modest collection of candy. Before going to bed, he chose a pixie sticks to eat. Shortly after ingesting the sugar, he died. The straw had been laced with potassium cyanide. More deadly pixie sticks had been distributed to four other children, including Timothy's five-year-old sister, Elizabeth, and three neighbors. Fortunately, none of the others ate the candy. Whitney Parker, one of the neighbor's children, had almost eaten his, but his fingers were too small to remove the staples holding the pixie sticks shut. In the days following the murder, detectives walked the trick-or-treat route with Timothy's father, Ronald, with no success at identifying a suspect. And then the police received a phone call. It was from the O'Brien family's insurance agent. He reported that earlier in the year, Ronald O'Brien took out two $10,000 life insurance policies on both of his children and none on either him or his wife. A month before the horrible incident, he took out an additional two $20,000 policies on the children. Asking around, They also found that O'Brien had a poor work history, cycling through 21 jobs in the last 10 years, and was around $100,000 in debt, well over half a million dollars today. Even more damning was the realization that he had attempted to purchase cyanide from several local sellers. Candy residue was also found on his pocket knife. The picture became clear. He had slit open the pixie sticks and inserted the cyanide before stapling the straw back together. On November 5, 1974, Ronald O'Brien was arrested and charged with capital murder, as well as four counts of attempted murder. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. O'Brien was tried half a year later. His defense relied heavily on the idea that the candy had originated from a different source, hearkening to the idea of a Halloween sadist. He claimed he had nothing to do with the poisoned candy. The evidence, however, was too damning to overlook. The jury took only 45 minutes to determine O'Brien was guilty and 75 minutes to determine the punishment. Ronald O'Brien was sentenced to death. His sentence would be carried out the next year, on October 31st, 1976. Mrs. O'Brien filed for divorce immediately following the sentence. In spite of the overwhelming evidence and ruling against him, Ronald maintained his innocence. He said in an interview that he was willing to take a polygraph test on the spot. His faith in his own innocence was unwavering. He explained, because I have no guilt, I am not worried about what happens to my physical body. When I die, I know where I'm going. Throughout the following year, he repeatedly appealed the jury's ruling. In a later interview, he called himself the true victim of this crime. Appeals from O'Brien and his lawyer successfully delayed the execution for years. As one of the first lethal injection cases handed down in Texas, O'Brien's fate became an intense political talking point. 
The debate between those Texans for and against the death penalty delayed O'Brien's judgment for a number of years. After the incident, the practice of trick-or-treating was effectively canceled in Pasadena. Many of the locals were too upset by the murder to participate in Halloween festivities ever again. Ronald O'Brien received a number of nicknames from the press, including the Candy Man and the Man Who Killed Halloween. In an interview on Death Row, a journalist mentioned to O'Brien that he was accused of ruining the holiday. With a smirk, O'Brien replied, well, that's a matter of opinion. Ronald O'Brien was executed by lethal injection on March 31, 1984. A crowd of around 300 demonstrators gathered outside the prison as his sentence was carried out. Some reportedly yelled, trick or treat, and threw candy at the anti-death penalty protesters. The O'Brien case was soon ground into the rumor mill that was Halloween candy tampering. The habit of writing about dangerous Halloween candy became a holiday tradition, both among newspapers and word-of-mouth gossip. The fear-mongering and paranoia spiked after the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders, where cyanide was placed in over-the-counter medication bottles. On October 31, 1983, Abigail Van Buren of Dear Abbey ran a column about the dangers of Halloween. Her column began with, Dear readers, it's Halloween again, and time to remind you that somebody's child will become violently ill or die after eating poisoned candy or an apple containing a razor blade. As with many urban legends of the time, Abby's column did little more than stoke irrational fears about the possibility of harm. In the 1980s, Joel Best, a researcher at the University of Delaware, was inspired to parse fact from fiction. He conducted an intensive study on child safety, which included a deep dive into the historical basis of candy tampering. Best compiled newspapers from 1958 to 1983 to determine how many instances of targeted candy poisoning had actually occurred on Halloween. In the end, he found around 76 reported instances in that time period, but was able to debunk every single one. He concluded that while instances like Ronald O'Brien definitely occurred, there is no concrete evidence for an unknown Halloween sadist who poisons random children that come to trick-or-treat. But what about that razor-blade apple rumor? Surely this persistent example is too specific to have just been made up by the rumor mill. Best had an answer for that as well. The culprits were children. In an interview for the documentary Killer Legends, Best said, If you think about it, this is a terrific kind of prank. It's easy enough to come by a pin, and easy enough to stick it in a candy bar, and then run in and say, Look, Mom, there's a pin in my candy bar. Best theorized that the childhood need for attention from parents led to some children tricking adults into believing that their candy was dangerous. But even in the face of this evidence, the endless fear machine of whispered rumors is impossible to stop. A few years after the study was published, the advice column Ask Ann Landers ran another article renewing the warnings about the dangers of Halloween. 
Once again, she repeated this myth to her faithful readers. In recent years, there have been reports of people with twisted minds putting razor blades and poison in taffy apples and Halloween candy. It is no longer safe to let your child eat treats that come from strangers. Even in the face of a complete lack of evidence, the Halloween sadist was a myth that would never die. In the eyes of many parents, the mere possibility of danger is more powerful than the academic studies disproving it. As definitive as Joel Best's research was, the myth of the Halloween sadist is almost synonymous with the classic term, stranger danger. And just like the Halloween sadist, stranger danger is itself a myth perpetuated by parental paranoia. Statistics have regularly shown that children are at greater risk of abuse and abduction from adults they already know than by random strangers. The Halloween sadist, therefore, becomes a stand-in for whatever group is undermining society in the eyes of concerned suburban parents or even law enforcement. As recently as 2017, over-enthusiastic drug enforcement agencies stoked fears that certain marijuana edibles were being designed to appear similar to Halloween candy. The fear of unsuspecting children being drugged without their knowledge was alive and well. However, in this case, there was no real risk of deception. The FDA required all marijuana candies to be labeled as such, and no instance of weed dealers attempting to drug children have been recorded. But as we have established, the spread of an urban legend is completely immune to facts or evidence. Halloween is a holiday based on fear. It is the one night where we let the darker parts of our imaginations run wild. Ghosts, ghouls, and goblins run freely among ordinary people on the night of October 31st. And yet, while people are very good at determining what imaginary monsters scare them, identifying real threats on this night of nightmares is surprisingly difficult. Should we fear roaming gangs who may mistake our innocent Halloween costume for a rival's color-coded uniform? Should we fear vandals who throw eggs at cars or light trash fires on mischief night? Or should we fear a stranger who seems friendly on the outside, but slips a poisoned piece of candy in amongst our loot? Anne Landers wrote that the dark side of this holiday is that hundreds of children will be injured and some may be killed. But the real dark side of Halloween may be something far less easy to defend against. The possibility that fear will cause you to look for danger where there is none. And while you're so focused on stoking fears of some fictional boogeyman, you're more likely to be blind to the very real threats that exist in the world. Danger, after all, is far more likely to come from an unscrupulous acquaintance than a candy-distributing stranger. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll continue our exploration of the dark side of holidays by diving into the dark underbelly of Veterans Day. 
You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like The Dark Side Of for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode was written by Robert Teamstra and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.